0: Welcome to Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You are listening to episode 163, and tonight we are covering the top five horror movies of 1979. This is another milestone for us to some degree, because after this episode, we will now have Frank's list for... Of horror movies for every year from 1970 through 1999. Um, So we'll have three decades of episodes up uh, after this. And uh, as kind of a bonus uh, at the end of this episode, uh, after we cover these five movies, um, Frank's going to uh, update his top five horror movies of the 70s list from some ancient episode from three years ago, probably 16, 17, uh, where we first made that list thinking we would never do this for this long um <clears throat> it'll still so, be wrong <laughs> right i mean am sure it's never changing thing you could do it 10 years from now and it'll probably be different but
1: um <clears throat> so how are you feeling about 1979 frank it was good um it was a little more low-key i think than previous years have been um Especially in terms of like what I guess you would consider standard horror, but um you know I really I enjoyed watching all five of these movies uh quite a bit so
0: so yeah it's got it's an interesting list for sure to talk about uh was there anything that came close to making the cut and didn't or was this like a down year for horror movies you think or no there's um there's a lot of
1: good stuff from this year uh-huh um there's a low-budget slasher movie called Driller Killer, which is kind of a um, punk sensibility, like, counterculture slasher, which is pretty decent. Um, Amityville Horror is 79, so, you know, that's was a possibility, and I kind of thought about that, but I'm, I'm not... I like Amityville Horror, but I kind of find it a little bit tedious, and I'm not a huge fan of the follow-up movies to it, so... Um, Phantasm is seventy nine, but I figured we talked about Phantasm enough. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's Taurus Trap, which is a fun, like, weird B horror movie. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but um, I mm-hmm. I enjoy that movie. And then Salem's Lot, I thought about putting on the list because I like that movie too. But um, I don't know. I don't really know how much there is to say about Salem's Lot, so I I thought it was more interesting to talk about. The five movies that we have here just quickly have i seen the driller killer before has that been on a list maybe nah no okay i don't know that i would have ever recommended it um i'm probably thinking of some other movie then you might be thinking of um slumber party massacre possibly that that guy's got a drill he does And they call him the driller killer gotcha that's Um, right yeah I was just looking at a couple of screenshots. It also
0: maybe the toolbox murders. It's reminding me of too. Oh, maybe,
1: yeah. It's it's yeah. similar in tone to that. Yeah, it's one of those ones where it's like armchair um, psychiatry, basically, mm-hmm. with um, this guy sort of like losing his mind, um, because he's like a tortured artist, kind of. Sure. Um, and again, it's kind of set in that bohemian. It's it's actually. It's really uncomfortable movie to watch cuz it's really dirty. Mm. Um very much like that late 70s New York punk bohemian um look to it. Uh, and it makes it really really uncomfortable to watch at times. Okay. So, yeah, I'm just going to add it to the be real quick. I'll check it out at some point. Wow. All right.
0: So, the other thing I wanted to ask, you, since this is kind of the last episode of the 70s, is um, now that we've been through all of this, um, I know this is your favorite decade of horror, right? Yeah. Um. So, could you try to maybe summarize the importance of this decade to some degree? Um, and that's putting you on the spot a little bit, but to like as we as as we get ready to go into the 80s into something that is different it
1: feels like it's it's the first decade where really like horror is taken seriously by directors and audiences too i think Mm -hmm. um not to say there's not traditional horror and you know we've talked about some of those especially like the british stuff and like hammer um you know, satanic rites to dracula to the devil a daughter whatever but um there's a lot more you definitely see the influence of psycho um throughout the 70s in terms of right people trying to put a little more emphasis on the human element of horror i guess um right. where it's more about like Less about, like, the marquee monster, more about the the man next door that's, you know, crazy or whatever. Um, we actually... There's some of that on on this list as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think... Uh, I mean, is Psycho, to your understanding, influenced the Giallo as well? I mean, Psycho influenced everything, really. Yeah, okay.
1: Right. Um, I mean, Psycho is... An influence on Bava and Argento mm-hmm. and Fulci, and um, you know, Bob Clark, and there's pl- plenty of people that I think if you, I we don't talk about Psycho much, and we don't talk about Hitchcock much, honestly, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not the most knowledgeable about Hitchcock, but I don't think it can be understated like how influential that movie is specifically and to a lesser extent um what is it the lodger right from right the 20s 29 maybe or something like that uh that also is like really influential but much more so psycho in the sense that 27 um you know here's there's an element of uncertainty to it because they kind of You know they pull the rug out Hitchcock pulls the rug out from under you And Psycho by sort of changing Who your main character is Midway through by like murdering the person That was the main focus of the movie Um, And then adding An element of Like the The genesis of Psycho um, Like criminal profiling And um, You know just there was the movement of like the self-help movement started in the 70s too mm-hmm. so there's that um sort of i guess like the progression of like the hippie um eastern philosophy um, and then directors finding like more of a uh, a dark edge to um to those philosophies and then working that in the horror um and then also just the idea that You know they were starting to identify like I mean you know You had Ed Gein you have um, uh, I guess what's his name Gacy is later In the 70s Um, But these people that you know Were doing these horrific things and they were starting To like enter the public consciousness And I think that that's A big part of an influence on The way the directors viewed like The movies they were making Um but it's definitely taken more seriously you know you don't have nearly as many and do you think that's
0: like boomers growing up with like horror movies from the 40s and 50s and seeing them in the theaters and then wanting to make their own things to scare people to some degree
1: yeah i mean i think also i think it's a large influence of the the more art house movement of um film in the 60s so like fellini and antonioni and um and bergman and kurosawa and you had these people who were now going to film school um and getting degrees in film and they were influenced by you know these masters basically of of movies but um that influence starts to just permeate like other genres other than you know drama or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it so um a lot of these directors are people who are you know really talented people i mean like you look at some of the people that make horror in the 1970s and you have um you know polanski and you have uh nicholas rogue and kubrick and um you know people that are generally considered to be like in that second and third of the century like the masters of the, um, of the format of, you know, whatever the of film and they're pulled into the idea of making hard too. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's also a reaction to the plastic um, nature of like disco and kind of the prevailing like social norms of the time that are, so, you know, this idea of like what led into the eighties, like the, conspicuous consumption and mm-hmm. sort of an anti-reaction to maybe um like the flower power like peace and love of the 60s and it, you know, i was thinking about this the other day so it's interesting you asked this not to like belabor this too much but um you look at people like i was i was thinking actually about abby hoffman of all people the other day hmm. and how here's this guy that was like almost like the king of like the psychedelic like the Motley Fool, whatever, um, you know, tune in, turn on, whatever, yeah. drop out, whatever movement, yeah. And all these people are taking like this idea of peace and love, and they're commodifying it. They're making it into uh, something that's commercial, and you know, it's not free love anymore. It's like the idea of free love for a price. And mm-hmm. so I think that there's a lot of disillusionment from people that were, you know, young and kind of coming of age during that time. And now seeing all these older people, um, you know, maybe like older siblings or even just like, not their parents, but the, the pre like the preceding generation, like turning into these crass capitalists that are listening to this manufactured music and discos and, Dressing in these crazy polyester costumes, and there's a lot of I think negative reaction there too, in the sense of um, you know, a lot of horror is about like being an outcast in society or mm-hmm. society turning you against. Um, and we're going to talk about a movie here. This movie we talked about before, but you know, it's basically I don't know, like a like an almost anti um pop pop psychiatry movie in a lot of ways right like Mm -hmm. taking something like the idea of like the self-help book or the you know like what we would think of as like dr oz or dr phil or whoever like all these people who promote these fix yourself quick like schemes like diets or um self-affirmation um whatever and then like taking that to like theological extreme of like how dangerous could that be so yeah
0: and then you have stuff that another movie we're going to talk about this semester too where it's like i think you see the beginning the semester of, sorry, sorry <laughs> man, i got work on the brain um this uh this list i where you see the beginnings a little bit of the 80s coming one of the movies we're going to talk about starts to get into almost concepts of like stranger danger or something like that yeah um, like be, be scared of your neighbor, um, you know, cutting off like kind of like ties to like you know others in the community where the 70s, 60s, and you know, 70s is all about the sense of community, and um, yeah, it's 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 interesting how I mean, obviously, movies themselves are going to reflect the times, but um, <coughs> yeah, I think you definitely see, um, you see the time period reflected as we've like went through here. And that's why I was kind of like interested in getting your take on it because uh, you definitely see the world
1: in these movies to some
0: degree and how it's changing.
1: Um, I I mean, from my perspective, it's easier to talk about stuff in the eighties because I mean, I was still a kid, but I was a lot more aware, you know, and I'm making a lot of assumptions about stuff in the seventies, but, you know, you even look at stuff like, like Cassavetes and, um, uh, shit. Five. Like the more like underground stuff from the seventies. Mm-hmm. So you think about stuff like five easy pieces or sure. the King of Marvin gardens or, um, the last detail. I mean, there's a lot of movies that, you know, one flare with a cuckoo's nest, like movies that are just about like people unable to cope with like being in this new, like this new society. Sure,
0: I mean, I keep, I, I always go back, like, often when I'm thinking about like these '70s movies to let's scare Jessica to death. Yeah, which is, you know, that which we talked about at length in whatever year that was, '75 uh, maybe or something, '74, and like this, this idea of like them trying to continue living in this kind of communal lifestyle, um, but basically it's like you know the town is full of vampires that are coming to like you know basically like either kill them or like you know turn them in some way and i mean what what a better analogy for you know how like the the ones that were rebellious in that generation the sure. um, other
1: good example of that is something like stepford wives you know like here's mm-hmm. this successful family where the guy is burned out from you know living in the city and working in the city and basically forces his family to come and live in this idyllic community and right like what what does it hide like what's under the surface so right And i think a lot of people felt that way too because you know you had moved out of the 50s where everything was like small close-knit communities and there was the urban sprawl like the expansion of the suburb and um you didn't really have like close-knit communities anymore and you're right like the beginning of stranger danger in the sense of you know who's watching your children you know who's like people starting to talk more openly about you know uncomfortable topics like sexual molestation and child kidnapping and Mm -hmm. rape and then again like the growing awareness of the fact that there are people that are you know like predators of human beings like that are out there like that are killing people just to kill people. And, you know, I think that creates like a, in the same way that we had the, um we had the cold war really, you know, and like we had a lot of fear about nuclear, nuclear winter and nuclear escalation. And there was a lot of stuff that played off that, you know, here you have to your point, like, who's my neighbor? Like, what is this company I'm working for? Like, what is this job that I'm doing? What is, You know, what's in the food that I'm eating or, you know, Mm -hmm. who's actually like my preacher at my church and like all that stuff becomes much more, um, much more prevalent, I think, both in like, you know, like urban, urban myth and legend and whatever, and then just popular culture, like taking advantage of that. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, in a sense, yeah, the sense of ownership increases, people become more closed off. Um, they start, like, you know, questioning everything of, like, what they can trust. And, I mean, like, we can probably see some kind of uh, roots even in that concept of what slowly is becoming, like, that ends up growing into what we have today, honestly. Yeah.
1: and then in the 1980s, um, you move more into a combination of people who are have more access to cheap filmmaking equipment so they can make their own movies. Mm-hmm. Um, with the you know the increase of like camcorders and vhs and then also the studio is becoming more interested in making money because of stuff like halloween and texas chainsaw and poltergeist and right um friday the 13th you know then they start to see like oh well you know i don't have to invest much i can hire some young director fresh out of film school and spend a little bit of money and, you know, make a, you know, three, four hundred percent return on my investment.
0: So sure. And even and because of the popularity of video stores, even if it doesn't get a theatrical release and you can't cut that deal, you can still sell, you know, a copy of it right. for a hundred dollars to every video store across yeah. the country. And you're still making some money. I mean,
1: yeah. So and that, that hasn't happened yet. I mean, that's right. Right. Really, like two years after this um maybe even like three or four years after this is really when it starts to build up but like the vhs boom i guess well really more the the idea that of the profitability of like releasing these as mainstream movies Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um this isn't something that's going to get released in like some concrete box like tuplex. you know it's something that's going to get released at the um you know the amc or the Hoyts or whatever Mm -hmm. um and actually be seen by a lot of people like and be a marquee movie, so yeah.
0: All right, well, thank you for that. Um, let's go ahead and jump into your list though. Um, and number five on your list is Murder by Decree, it is directed by Bob Clark. It stars Christopher Plummer, James Mason, Donald Sutherland, David Hemmings, and Susan Clark. It has an 85% from critics on Round Tomatoes, 64% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this one and why it's on a horror movie list?
1: So this is really more of a mystery thriller um, I put it on the horror movie list Because In essence um, There's a Graphic novel that was released Between like the late 90s and the mid or Early 2000s called from or no The late 80s to the late 90s um, Called from hell that was Written by Alan Moore um, Illustrated by uh, uh, Eddie Campbell that is essentially the story so i guess in the early late, late 60s early 70s there started to be a large amount of um speculative pseudo um nonfiction about jack the ripper and uh, specifically theories about who was jack the ripper and why was jack the ripper never caught Uh, So one of the theories that gained a lot of traction and ended up being captured uh, pretty brilliantly by Alan Moore is the idea that um, Jack the Ripper was someone who worked for the royal family, who was kind of sanctioned by the government to murder these women who had information that could be potentially embarrassing to the royal family. Um, There was another movie made starring uh, Johnny Depp and shit. I can't remember who starred in that with him. I can't remember who the woman is. Natalie Portman, maybe? Nah. No, that's not right. Anyway, uh, that's essentially the same movie as Heather this. Heather Graham. <clears throat> Heather Graham, right. Um, she plays the Mary Riley character, or Mary Kelly character. Um, that's essentially the same movie as this, but the general gist is, like I said, that um, Jack the Ripper is, you know, operating in Whitechapel. The police can't catch him. Um the locals feel like he's basically operating with impunity because he's murdering women of the night. And nobody cares about them. And so, whereas in the from hell story, it's a um, detective from uh, Scotland Yard. That's brought in to investigate in this case, it's Sherlock Holmes is brought in to investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, Sherlock Holmes is played by Christopher Plummer. Um, James Mason plays uh, Watson And then there's a bunch of other character actors from the 70s, like really strong British character actors. Um, David Hemmings plays uh, one of the Scotland Yard detectives. Um, John Gielgud plays the prime minister. Uh, Donald Sutherland plays a psychic, John Lees. Um, Genevieve Buhold is one of the missing prostitutes from Whitechapel. Um, So that's the basic story, you know, is that Holmes is investigating uh, the Whitechapel murders and finds out that there's starts to make connections between um, these women that are missing and, or these women that have been murdered and this woman that's missing and eventually makes the connection between her and the Royal family. Um, And is basically told like, kind of like, you know, you need to leave this be um, because we have to protect the family. But reason I wanted to talk about this number one is because I thought it was nice to bookend these lists with Bob Clark movies Hmm. um I think that Clark is a pretty underrated uh director um you know I mean I think most people would think when they think of Bob Clark if they think about Bob Clark um they're thinking about you know Christmas Story um maybe Porky's or something but to me I think that he's one of the more underrated horror directors um especially from like these early days of what we would consider to be modern horror, like moving away from the universal movies and hammer um, uh, templates into like more thoughtful, um, thought provoking. Um, And I think that this is a really good bookend to something like black Christmas where black Christmas is very raw and very, innovative in a lot of ways and it's it's a really realistic portrayal of people and this is the complete opposite this is very much a uh, historical recreation um with the speculative fiction aspect of you know putting homes into this environment of being the one like researching the jack the river murders um, I also, I really love in this movie the interactions between uh, Plummer and Mason as Holmes and Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a real genuine co- camaraderie between the two of them. And I think it kind of makes the entire movie, because by and large, this movie is slow and it drags the points. Um, and I think that's just because it's filmed in a very British style like it's very much procedural Um, but there's small things about this movie like one of my favorite scenes and this is not horror at all one of my favorite scenes is um, Holmes is talking to Watson and Watson's trying to eat his dinner and Watson is struggling with eating his peas because the peas keep rolling off of his fork Mm -hmm. and Holmes takes Watson's fork and squishes a pea and hands it to him and is like you know basically like idiot like this is how you eat a pea. and watson's response is i don't want to squish the pea. that's not how i like to eat my peas i like to feel the pea pop like the surprising <laughs> pop in right. my mouth that's part of the pleasure of eating the pea. <laughs> and it's like it's a nothing exchange but it's uh-huh. like it's stuck with me for i don't know i saw this movie maybe in like 93 or 94 for the first time mm-hmm um, and it stuck with me then, like it really stuck out to me, and it stuck with me the entire time. Um, and the other smaller performances are really great too. Um, I'm always, I will always love Donald Sutherland. I wish he was in it a little more, but um, he's kind of playing his spaced out um, weirdo persona that he does. Um, but it's interesting, giving the time period that
0: it's in, like the twists, like the the way it comes off to me. I thought was really interesting
1: yeah so it's probably very historically accurate in the sense because there was a lot of belief in spiritualism and mysticism at this time sure um you know this is like the the heyday of seances and um physical mediums and whatever and so lee's being a um a mental medium like somebody that you know whatever touches an object and then can visualize it um he, he plays it really well mm-hmm. um again i i really like Plummer as holmes um i think he does a good job of showing holmes for being the both the genius and the massive egoist that mm-hmm. holmes is yep um and it's definitely not like a precious portrayal of holmes like as a british hero like he's a very human man dude is always like falling over like you just like look at him and he's like uh, like painting with the papers <laughs> mm-hmm. whereas like watson's getting stabbed with you know flaming fucking skewers and um he somehow managed to soldier on and i really like the um there's some actually some pretty horrific scenes in this movie like there's um fuck i can't remember her name it's like emma cook i guess or whatever like is the woman who had the baby and then um was basically committed to a mental asylum to sort of silence her um and she had given the baby to mary riley and holmes actually gets mary riley killed by doing his investigation uh because they hadn't been able to find her until he found her for them kind of but when they're in this mental institution they're surrounded by these women who are um you know insane and it's really um it's it's dismal and it's dark and it's it's really uncomfortable and kind of scary mm-hmm. and really well done um so even though i think that overall the movie can kind of drag at times i think that clark definitely has moments where he elevates it to a more horrific like the scene where um Holmes comes in and they're uh killing um mary kelly and it's uh the physician and the the killer with his um cane sword or whatever and just the blood like it's right. it's not like a lot of blood mm-hmm. it's just blood like small blood splatters on these men's faces and the look of like fear in the one guy's eyes and like lust and <laughs> um, anger in the other guy's eyes and then it, it turns into this like chase that's really tense um, but just, it's it's a well done movie It's a really interesting story I would recommend more than anything To read from Hell um, You can buy it in collected trade For, you know, like 20 or $30 uh, It's really well illustrated And really, really well written um, And one of and In my opinion, probably Moore's Like greatest achievement Next to Watchmen um, The movie from Hell is not as Not as good um, It's very slick Um, slickly produced but it's it's still decent and worth watching um but this movie it's it's enjoyable um it's probably 15 minutes too long i guess although i don't know what i would cut out but it definitely you know goes on a little too long um it looks kind of goofy because they use miniature sets to to show london um i guess because whatever it was way too expensive to film on those um like a soundstage probably and recreate uh late 1800s you know Whitechapel and Spitalfields or whatever but right. um so that looks goofy sometimes but still like you know worth watching in my opinion an enjoyable movie with really good performances
0: yeah I think I think Plummer is probably my second favorite homes I've seen on screen after Cumberbatch um And I only mean the quality of Sherlock the show, because I think that, like, dives at some point, like, in the second season. But um, Cumberbatch as Holmes is, like, kind of how I imagine him and hitting all the right notes of, like, his brilliance and is just being a complete and utter asshole. Um, But uh, Plummer does a really good job here in his own kind of classical way of doing something similar, I think, at times. Um, Yeah. I, I I forgot that I had seen this cuz you actually told me to watch this when I was in college because I we were two different points of the semester we were doing homes like old homes and modern homes and I ended up having to watch the adaptation of the 7% solution with um uh Nicola Williamson playing Yeah um homes and I ended up having to compare it to another um you know modern but classical um classical uh, modern adaptation of classical home stories um and you told me about this um and I watched and like wrote a paper on it and then I forgot that I watched it until I started watching it <laughs> but um but I really do I do really appreciate Plummer a lot um
1: in this, Yeah there's I, Yeah yeah there, there's a scene where Plummer and Watson are kind of discussing I think it's before he's really committed to investigating these murders and they're talking and they're having this really good dialogue. And at the end of it, um, Watson is like perplexed because Holmes has used his hypodermic needles to clean his pipes. Mm -hmm. And just like, even when he's like having these, like intellectual conversations he's still just an oblivious asshole and it's just um right it's yeah. a really there, there. there's so many things there that like kind of take the legs out underneath Holmes. as like any like he's this brilliant mind but this terrible person in a lot of ways even though he has this really like overriding sense of justice and i think that's actually probably the i think the most poignant part of the movie is when you realize that like Holmes realizes himself that it was him, doggedly trying to get to the truth that he caused, you know, these women to die. Basically, yeah, um, because he he just couldn't leave it alone. Um, even when he realized like what he was getting into, you know, he's. I don't know, it, but it's 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 really well done and very yeah. It,
0: well. The 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 thing with Holmes, I think, is that the I think the lesson maybe that that Doyle was going for, and I don't know this for a fact, but it feels like it's like when you are all logic, when you're like you're no emotion, all logic. There's a toxicity to it that permeates your entire being if everything is just purely logical, and um. I think I, I, I get a sense of that's where that character probably developed is that if, if this person could solve all these mysteries, like, you know, if they know, have all this knowledge and can follow it through, through the logical like threads of every single investigation, like what does that person actually look like in real life? And he's kind of a dick. Um, <clears throat> and there's times where Plumber plumber masterfully just with like a single, like slight turn of the head, like a half inch, and like a sideways glance can just like cut somebody down yeah. Um, at times. And it's uh, a, yeah, it's a, it's a really good performance. And um, I just wish they would have leaned a little bit more into the horror elements of it with the serial killer stuff at times. Yeah. That's the only, that's the, my, my
1: only real complaint about it. Mm-hmm. I think that was some of the critical complaint too, honestly, is that it's um a little dry uh, at times. And again, like to me, it's because it's focusing more on the procedural aspect sure. of the investigation, but the scene where they're asked to go to the docks to meet like the informant and the guys on a boat, like underneath the pier talking to him. And then there's the killers like hiding in the shadows and sort of basically waiting to pounce out and kill um, Sherlock and Watson. Um, and they end up just like leaving and he ends up killing the informant, but it's, um it's really well filmed and really creepy. Mm-hmm. And again, like you, you can see a lot of Clark's talent. Um, the other thing that like and this is more of a general statement about this list in general none of these movies look like each other at all like they're oh. all very distinctly different um, in the way that they're filmed and the way that they're sort of like conceptualized and there's almost like a like a fairy tale dreaminess to some of Clark's direction here um, in particular, when the John Lees or the, um not John Lees, whatever his name is, the mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland character Lees, whatever. Um, it's filmed like very almost like ephemeral and, you know, he definitely takes advantage of like the fogginess of the streets at night and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but yeah, like every one of these movies looks completely different from the other and they're all very purposefully it's not just like cheap filmmaking, like every single one of these directors has a very specific idea in mind, um, when filming these movies. So,
0: but yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, and also too, uh, I mean, besides, uh, I want to say Bob Clark is Canadian. I think if I remember correctly. Yeah. He's Canadian. Um, and we got another Canadian on the list that we'll talk about here in a moment. Um, and then, um, I think, uh, an American and Kinski was, well, I'm um, not like, Herzog, but he's German, uh, yeah, yeah, German, yeah, right, so it's like is the the Italian, so yeah, I mean, like different again, different nationalities too. Like, I'm um, being represented on this list, which is interesting. Um, not only one American, um, all right, so let's go ahead and move on to number four. Um, oh, real quick, I wanted to ask you, do you know who my third favorite Holmes is?
1: Christopher Lee, or no, um, what's his name? Peter Cushing. Yep, Peter Cushing. Good yeah, job. Sorry. Yep, you got it. Yeah, um, yeah, Cushing, good. His... Cushing is is maybe my him or Plumber is my favorite. I'm I'm not a fan of Cumberbatch necessarily, but I, I didn't watch much of that show, so maybe mm-hmm. I'm not being fair. Um, but I I love Cushing as Holmes. Yeah, no, he's really good. Cushing has that roomy like, um morphine addled like i look to him
0: to he does it and to me everything about cushing i think it's probably one of my problems with him at times everything about cushing he just like comes off as and he's probably not he's probably was a really nice guy or something but it's like i think because of like my childhood and knowing him as like grandma of tarkin like i always just see an asshole like he's just a pompous <laughs> jerk yeah at like all times no matter what role he's in um but he's also very good at playing those. so um but uh, yeah that's one of the aspects I like of his homes is that he's just so pompous um and like do right um about everything all right, so number four on your list is a movie we've discussed before, um, worth discussing again, Um, is David Cronenberg's The Brood. It um, stars Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, and Art Hindle. has an 82% from critics and a 68% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to tell us a little bit about this and um, uh, why it made the list?
1: Well, it made the list because I think it's a brilliant movie. Um, I believe it was your number one movie on the Cronenberg list years ago, right? Mm, if not it would have it would need to be that or scanners i think yeah, i think it was this one yeah um this is honestly cronenberg's most straightforward horror movie i think um it's the one that deals the with the least and it still has some weird ass shit in it but it's definitely um the closest thing to like a monster movie really that mm-hmm. like a traditional like horror monster movie that cronenberg ever made um, we've talked about it before, like you said, but the premise is that, um, this man is basically trying to get full custody of his daughter from his ex-wife, but his ex-wife is in this, uh, radical experimental behavioral therapy, um, that involves like channeling your rage, uh, with Oliver Reed's, um, shit, what is his name? of uh, the doctor? Yeah. Oh, shit. <clears throat> I had it up already <clears throat> um, Hal Raglan so Hal Raglan has Ragland. This, right. written this book about a psycho shit it's a psychotherapy um, psychoplasmics hmm. which is basically channeling your it's it's a role play psychiatry where the person um, almost like altered states like becomes the the character that they're role playing and through that can release like pent up anger and rage and repressed Mm -hmm. um, feelings inside. Um, So Frank is trying to get custody of his daughter and his wife, his ex-wife Nola is in this therapy. Um, So he goes to his daughter is visits the mother on the weekends He goes to pick her up at the end of the weekend and realizes she has, like, scratches and bruises all over her back. Throughout the course of the movie, you find that um, Nola was similarly abused by her mother when she was young. So Frank's thought is that Nola is basically abusing her daughter during these visits and wants to remove her from um, being able to see her mom which raglan is opposed to because he says that's a big part of the therapy is the mother having the interaction with the daughter um so a lot of the movie is really it's 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 oliver reed and samantha agger um having these fantastic like exchanges with each other like those two characters are the best part of the movie, I think, in terms of, like, the performances, and I I think Oliver Reed is fantastic in it. Yes. Which also, the second time we've talked about Oliver Reed on the podcast this year, um, because he was in The Devil, so it's another nice Mm -hmm. callback to a previous episode, um, in that sense. But uh, the end is that there's these creatures, like, killing people that nola is angry at and what you find in the end is they are um i guess like uh psychopomps that she's making through her rage out of mm-hmm. like her body like she's giving birth to these anger babies mm-hmm. that can't live for very long like away from her um but are going out and killing the people that she's angry at so they kill her mom they kill her dad um, they kill the woman that uh, Frank is interested in, like this te- the his daughter's teacher, um, and eventually they end up killing uh, Oliver Reed too. Um, I think that so I I love the look of the creatures here, like they have this almost like a prototype for the vampires in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Um in the uh-huh. sense that they're like children but they have these like wrinkled up wizened faces. Um they have these cleft palates so they almost have kind of a like a duck with that with its beak ripped off kind of look to it which is really mm-hmm. disturbing with these sharp little teeth and these beady little eyes. Um and Cronenberg does a fantastic job of filming them. Um is really like cuz it's, it's it's kind of a goofy idea but he makes them really menacing by having them kind of like jump out from hiding places and like above, you know, to pounce on people and uh, really brutally murder uh, because they are like, because they're a physical manifestation of a rage. They murder people in like these really brutal personal, like physical ways. Like the mother is beat to death with a meat tenderizer mallet. And the father is beat to death with like two snow globes. Mm-hmm. Um the teacher gets beat to death with a hammer. I guess like a toy hammer or whatever from a block set. Um, beautiful looking movie like Cronenberg. It's it, it feels very much set in the seventies with the color palette and especially the costuming. Like it's very much um, what I consider like the I don't know the bourgeois chic of like the seventies with the high collared. Coats with the um, what do you call it, like straps around them, and Mm -hmm. um, the little girl wears this like garish, like orange uh, (laughs) jumper because it's the winter. Um, Yeah, I mean, like again, we we've talked about this movie before, and um, I just think it's really well filmed. Um, I love the monsters in it, and I'm a huge sucker for Oliver Reed. Like I think Oliver Reed is. Probably next to like Sutherland And um David Warner like really one of my Favorite character actors from this time Period Um And there's a It's funny because like I guess Ostensibly he's the villain of the movie But It's not purposeful like he's not A bad man he thinks he's doing The right thing and he thinks He's helping this woman but it's almost like The Holmes um, almost like the Holmes portrayal by Plummer where it's like so concerned about like the greater good that he misses the damage that you know his tactics are having on the people that he's trying to help Um, I think Eggers is really great in this um, as the histrionic like
0: yes Shield. The only
1: the only problem is that, and th- this is a problem with any time that, and we'll talk about this actually with the next movie too, but or no, the second movie. A- any time that psychiatry is portrayed, it's always very kind of damaging because, and I I know that this this movie was catharsis for Cronenberg because he was kind of it's very, making it to
0: very obvious,
1: yeah. Um, to deal with his own divorce but at the same time it's making her like this woman that has like obvious mental problems like making her the bad guy yes and that her mental problems are like murdering people it's just a little uncomfortable i think in like how we view like mental health now which and i don't even know that we're still like completely i i I don't think we still do a good job and i say we in like the very general sense of portraying mental health issues in in media yeah um but definitely it's not as like grotesque as as this is well it's 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 a
0: it's victim blaming to some degree and ignoring and and it, it it here I've come around to this movie. I, I texted this the other day, like where I've come around to it a little bit more. Like I appreciate it, especially like the ending of it. Um, I found that I actually like kind of like Cronin's body horror stuff, um, and I do kind of like the idea that there is a slow build and like the body horror like is like the horrifying thing of the movie, right. um, like and it builds to that. I, I think because, like you said, it's like a very classical monster movie. I think that kind of like wears me down a little bit as I'm watching it because it's just very talky and there's not enough, there, very similar to Murder by Decree, I guess. Like, well, there's not enough of those horror elements to me at times. Um, I agree with you. I think it looks good. Um, I think there's, you know, you, you're seeing the obvious talent of Cronenberg in the filmmaking process of it. Um, um, Art Hindle is like, dry and bland as hell to me as the like kind of protagonist but the more i thought about like why like i have like a an issue with this movie i think is like the idea and long-time listeners have heard me talk about this a little bit before um but for those that don't know like um there's always a joke about like this is like things being a larry gaspery movie who was my father um and we usually talk about that in reference to sci-fi and um fantasy movies uh that he was keen on but he also watched horror and this is definitely even if i don't remember him watching this this is a larry gasberry movie because he loved horror movies that um featured male protagonists so he loved the changeling for instance a movie that i also love but um but it's like he loved things with male protagonists that had something devastating happen to them um, and in this case, like, I could just see, like, my father going, like, yeah, that's right, <laughs> as I'm watching this. So everything you just described about, like, you know, like, the the problems with, like, you know, how the mental health is portrayed, the idea that this basically is, like, some sort of, like, um, rescue fantasy of, like, rescuing the child from the crazy mother right. uh, feels really uncomfortable to me, um, particularly since... There's elements of that, I think, like, you know, I can put that on my father and see, like, how that would be, like, his mental image of, like, how, like, my childhood was. Yeah. Um. And it's just kind of, like, eh. <laughs> um, so that part of it, I think you're right. I think you nailed it, like, in your description. And it's, like, I think that's the thing that always, like, kind of discomforts me as I it's, watch this at times, even though it's a good movie.
1: It's funny because completely unrelated, but um, our friend uh, Mike Bledsoe texted us tonight asking... Um, what's happened to PMS and why does no one talk about PMS anymore? Huh, right. And my response was, like, it's kind of uncomfortable in, like, the modern day to sort of low-key call somebody, like, a cranky bitch just because she's menstruating. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's the same thing here. It's like... yeah. And, I, again, I know that Cronenberg is, like, working through his own personal issues here, but... <laughs> Like basically, this woman was abused as a child and has mental issues because of it, and she's a murderous like harpy that can't stand the idea of her ex husband being with anybody else, right? And can't stand the idea of like her child having affection for anyone else or anyone else like being able to take care of her child, and so she murders everyone because of it. Yeah.
0: And then and, and, and this will be the last thing I say. Like, I acknowledge this is a good movie, like, uh, and, and in a lot of ways. It's just, I don't think completely for me. Um, but I do think this idea, and look, every artist, like, you know, gets out their own shit, like, onto their medium. So I don't begrudge Cronenberg in doing that. Um, but what he's getting out and what that is revealing in some ways is kind of icky um just as we talked about when we talked about uh close encounters of the third kind uh, which is a movie i love um but it's just it's the same kind of ickiness i feel when it's so obvious that spielberg is getting his shit out about his divorce and like you know like what he you know the the nagging wife and like you know the um the young like you know um young woman you know mother that can save him like in new love and it's just like ugh, like it's so gross to see it's so apparent
1: on the screen coming out um, yeah. of them the only thing i can say is that like i don't think of cronenberg is i don't know like i don't know if i think of cronenberg as a misogynist necessarily but i wonder if maybe maybe the villain here really is like the the society that's put her in a position where she can't just like she has to be institutionalized because she has like anger issues, you know. Yeah. And it's that forced institutional. Although she volunteers to do it, so it's not forced. Yeah. I'm sure his
0: wife was seeing a therapist, and the therapist was like f- filling her head um yeah. with ideas, probably. And he took a. <laughs> What's
1: well, the thing is like the most telling line in the movie is um. When Frank is talking to his uh, his new love interest, and he says, "Um, she saw sanity in me that she thought, um, would rub off on her, but really <laughs> it went the other way or something like that." Right, right. Um, and it's like, right, you fucking dick, mm-hmm. yeah, Old Art Hindle. He's he's as plastic as his haircut, but and his jawline. Yeah, um, he does, does have an impressive jawline. He does. absolutely impressive
0: look to the guy um (laughs) if you can't say anything nice don't say anything um all right so let's move on to number three number three on your list is Nosferatu directed by Warner Herzog starring Klaus Kinski Kinski, Isabel Jani, and Bruno Gantz it has a Mm -hmm. 95 percent from critics and 83% from audiences so you want to tell us a little bit about this adaptation and uh, why you put it on the list
1: so I don't really feel like we need to talk about the story because the story is Dracula so Mm -hmm. I think everyone knows the story of Dracula Um, the really interesting thing about this movie is and I I didn't know this until um, I was reading some stuff uh, about it for the podcast after watching it Um, I guess that Nosferatu was lost Uh, for a really long time and had been kind of unknown until a a print was found in like the early seventies and Herzog considered Nosferatu to be the greatest German film ever made. Like he was completely in love with the movie and that's what kind of inspired him to, to want to do a color, um, modern adaptation. In addition to that, um, uh, Bram Stoker's widow's, uh, claim to the copyright on Dracula had expired like Mm. right before he started filming this movie so they were able to take the imagery from Nosferatu you know the silent film from the 20s and tell the story of Dracula using you know the Harkers and um, Van Helsing and Count Dracula like use those titles in it so it's really interesting that like this is almost one of Herzog's probably biggest passion projects ever, Mm -hmm. is making this movie where he is basically almost like helping to preserve the idea of the original Nosferatu in a modern way um, for audiences. Uh, This is a second collaboration between him and um, Klaus Kinski. Um, Kinski is I think fucking... Brilliant and captivating as the Count Dracula character, um, he looks alien and menacing, but also has this weird, almost like ultra humanity to him, where like you feel like emotion and sadness and longing and like loneliness from him. Um, the thing that I I I love about this movie and I can understand if it's not everyone's cup of tea is that Herzog films this movie much different than other movies that he's, he always infuses his movies with color and he almost is like a painter where he's got like a palette that he's painting with in every movie. And it's always slightly different. And this movie is like some, dutch masters like oil painting basically Mm -hmm. like and it's purposeful and I, i i i thought of it when i was watching it this time um in the early outset and then i sort of like paid attention to every single scene and if you look at every scene he frames every scene as like a still life at first and then allows for movement to occur but Still is like very slow and Methodical in every movement and every Scene so there's a There's a scene early on um, A couple minutes Into the movie where there's A bowl With like two two or three apples Outside of it and a couple Of cats like pawing At a um, a locket That's hanging from this uh, Curio cabinet kind of thing And It's everything is frozen in place for maybe like three or four seconds but it even though like the way the like i i i think and i i wish there was more to read about this but i think they actually painted the apples to look like they were painted in oils so that every scene is kind of framed in that way um there's a couple scenes later where he's definitely channeling like goya um and Rembrandt like 100% just the way like the deep blacks and the way the um the actors are like aligned like within the frame of the sure. shot um and i think it's done that way because it's very he's filming it in a style that because it's a period piece you know he's filming to make you feel like it's it's old and classical and that way, when he brings you into Dracula's castle, and he like drains the light from everything and starts filming in these like blue filters and stuff, where it's just, like everything's like lit in this ghostly, like otherworldly light. It makes it so much more creepy and effective. Um, the problem with the movie it, it the movie is beautiful, and it might actually be. Although I have some arguments to make about the first movie on the list. It's probably, like, the most masterfully filmed movie on this list. Sure. The problem is that the story of Dracula is actually kind of boring. And we've seen the story of Dracula so many times. um, Yeah. Almost, like, to the T, that there's not really a whole lot of interest, I don't think, to, to me, in watching Dracula told over and over again. The thing that really drives it is the performances. You know, it's a Johnny, it's it's Kinski in particular, mm-hmm. um, but even some of the smaller, like the guy that plays Renfield, um, and then again, like just the beauty of Herzog's cinematography and framing, and just the way that he can consistently capture—I don't know, like just gorgeous, like shots almost every single. Every single frame is like able to be deconstructed and appreciated and I don't know. So again, it's it's not my favorite genre in terms of, because I'm not a fan of vampire movies necessarily. Um, but I think definitely because of the visuals, it's it's worth watching. Um, and in particular to see Kinski's performance. I think Lynch might have actually been influenced by this movie too. I'm I'm, I'm curious about that. Because there's a scene when their boat so um, fuck what's his name Jonathan Harker Hark- Harker mm-hmm. has brought Dracula back to um, Weimar via boat and there's a scene where um, Kinski as Dracula is carrying his coffin off of this boat and I swear to God it's like I, I think that's where he got the shot of Laura Dern in Inland Empire Mm-hmm. Because it's it's purposefully slowed down, it's purposefully done in a way where it's a very menacing angle at you, the viewer. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like breaking the um breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. in the way that it's shot. And I like I I never noticed it before, and it's been a while since I've watched um this this version of Us for Out Two, but I really felt like I was like, man, I wonder if Lynch saw this and was like, you know, I'm going to use the same technique someday and that's where that Laura Dern um scene comes from so I would
0: love to know what goes on in Davis Lynch's mind like I like cause I can't even tell if he consciously thinks those kind of things like I think they just like become a part like I suspect they become a part of him and he replicates them maybe without even remembering it necessarily sometimes like um, I don't know what that dude processes or takes in or how he <laughs> thinks but um you're right now that you mention it like uh I can see that absolutely of uh, being like a very very
1: almost like exact shot really um yeah, but this this is very purposefully filmed and very methodically
0: it's crafted one the, it's one of the most beautiful movies I've never seen this before it's one of the most beautiful movies i've ever seen
1: it's not something I would ever recommend to you, just because it is kind of boring. Yeah, it's a dull affair. Um, yeah. But man, like, I I think anytime Kinsky is on screen, he's like sure. magnetic and captivating. Agreed. Um, I like Isabella Johnny. I I think she's um overacts at times, and I think that happens here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kinski's like gravity just like brings her back down. I mean, that's a dude that, um, it's almost impossible for Kinski to have a bad role. Like, he's amazing to watch, in my opinion, so.
0: Yeah, there's nobody that works, like, I've ever seen that, like, is so intriguing in the way he works with his face and the makeup, like, that he, like, I'm assuming he has some say, maybe, in some of that stuff. Like, it's just, like, the way he uses his body. Like, um, it's, he's incredible.
1: And Um, it's also, it's... It's an almost perfect homage to Max Shrek without being, feeling like parody or imitation. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, it's his own performance, but it's like, there's things with the arms and the fingers and the shoulders, and even the way he contorts his face, that's so perfect. Um, Without it feeling like hammy or again, like, like pale imitation kind of so. I think that's pretty awesome.
0: It is, yeah. I mean, I only watched Herzog movies after you had me watch Aguirre all those years ago. I only watch them now unless they're on a list or, like, that somehow relates to the podcast. Um, but it's, like, every movie I've seen of Herzogs is, is just, in terms of look, is, like, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my entire life. And this is no exception. It's just kind of just... It's just kind of, like, it's too slow. Like, um... It was too slow for me to deal with, like to the point where it's like the scenes are so slow that it's like I, I fi- and I and I find myself lost in the visuals that it's like I would forget information. Sure. It's not because I'm being overloaded. It's because I'm being like, you know, it's like it's too far in between pieces of information.
1: Um, well, one of the things with Herzog is I think that most people probably are introduced to him by watching Aguirre, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And every one of his movies is so different. Um, Like yeah. you watch You watch even like Fitzcarraldo, um, Which brings Kinski back and it's set in the jungle And it's so much different Than Aguirre that it's like almost Jarring because it's like too And not even just the fact that he's making Such different movies um, Just like the Look and the feel mm-hmm. I mean like you watch something like a, The Enigma of Casper Hauser And it's like a different director Than the guy that directed Aguirre or like even George started small, or um, I don't know, like whatever. The one with um, Rescue Dawn, or whatever. Um, just so much, so so much difference in everything that he does. But he's really a pretty brilliant director, and I think that here you can see this again, like just almost like like painting painterly master detail that he puts in terms of like the color and the composition of his scenes like i, I think it's really brilliant yeah
0: no uh, think comparing the paintings is the absolute right thing yeah i also like the score in this um oh that's, yeah, that, yeah that's yeah. that band um palpal vu or voe or yeah. whatever um Popel, yeah i
1: don't the,
0: know how to say it that worked with um him on and, and fitz what's i um in a Gary especially, I like the score and that like what's done.
1: But. Speaking of scores, we didn't mention this, but um the guy that ended up winning Oscars for the Lord of the Rings movies mm-hmm. um and was Cronenberg's um has been Cronenberg's like basically like house musician when it comes to scores. That was his first score for Cronenberg and the Brood. Oh. Nice. Hm. It's actually his the only the second movie he ever scored um the first being some independent like low budget movie but for a guy that went on to become i think one of the more recognizable um like when you think of like that lord of the rings score sure um pretty interesting to to see like you know the the genesis point of him yeah it's always fascinating
0: to see where people come from sometimes it's like when I was looking up the Driller Killer and I saw Abel Ferrara, um, yeah, directed it. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know that like he had done a porn movie like a few years before that. Like, but directed a porn movie and it's like then he like directs like. I mean, it makes sense. Don't get me wrong, but then it's like you know some of the things that he's directed since then, like that have like a claim
1: to him and stuff like that. It's like, huh, interesting. Got to make your money somehow, baby. Sure. All right. Um.
0: Number two on your list is uh, one of the more famous openings of all time. One of Stranger Calls, directed by Fred Walden, starring Charles Durning, Carol Kane, Colleen Dewurst, and Tony Beckley. has 38% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 49% from audiences. Um, definitely the lowest rated on both of those counts um, on this list. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about this one and uh, why it's number two on the list?
1: Uh, so really kind of an extrapolation off just one of the more famous your point urban legends, um, which is the call is coming from within the house. Um, Carol Kane is a, I guess, a 17 or 18 year old high school student who's mm-hmm. babysitting. Um, she keeps getting these um, creepy phone calls asking like, have you checked the children? Have you checked the children? Um, she calls the police, but they're no help. Uh, so finally, she's able to keep the guy on the line for a, a little while, and the police call her back and tell her the call is coming from in the house. Um, and it turns out the children have been murdered by this man who was hiding upstairs and using like an old um, extra line to make the phone calls to the main line. Um, so fast forward, what seven years? Seven I think years. Say this. Is. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, Charles Durning, who was one of the detectives on the case, is now a private eye. He's hired by the father of the murdered children to um, the man is the, the guy that was the killer was found criminally insane and committed to an, uh, an institution and has escaped. So Durning is hired by this man to go and kill um, the killer. So from taking this very kind of like threadbare premise, it really extrapolates it in an interesting way. So Part of the movie is Charles Durning trying to find this man and the other part is this man who's obviously disturbed trying to kind of find his way through society that he's been out of for um, seven years and you find out that he was subjected to electroshock therapy which caused him to kind of even be crazier stalking this woman this kind of like old like blousy like barfly woman Uh, Who he ends up getting His ass kicked by this man because He's like won't leave her Alone and then follows Her to her house and there's some Creepiness to it but there's also Some real like loneliness and Sadness to the fact that this guy is just kind of Like fucked up and doesn't Know how to exist in society um, While Durning is trying to find him Um so He doesn't do anything like Violent or anything he's just kind of creepy Um so I guess part of the question is like was he actually like cured or at least, you know, rendered like less harmful by the electroshock therapy? Um, but then Derning almost kills him because that's his intent. Um and he goes crazy again and sees the picture of um uh what's her name? Carol Jill. Yeah. Carol Kane in in the newspaper and it triggers him um to want to go and find her and sort of kind of finish the job. Um, And then the movie just really kind of, like, ramps up and goes fast, and um, Durning ends up coming to their house and at least shooting him dead as he's about to kill her, Um, and that's, you know, the end of it. It's a really small movie, um, but I think it's really interesting in the fact that it, like, sets this premise up and they completely... Changes the setting and kind of the feel of it. Um, and for a very long stretch is really nothing really more of like a psychological thriller slash dirty Harry. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. I mean, as
0: like you said, he's not active necessarily though. It's more of an assumption that he will be active
1: right. um, by Durning's character, but that he's going to go back to his old ways, but yeah, he technically, like, doesn't do anything wrong mm-hmm. until he breaks into, you know, Kane's house at the end and mm-hmm. knocks her husband out and then tries to kill her. But sure. up until that point, like, he's not hurt anybody or attacked anybody or anything. He's just a creep um, and kind of a sad creep. But that um, it's more derning that's like breaking the law and like stalking him and um, assaulting him. That's more of like the bad guy Which is kind of funny mm-hmm. Um Yeah it's 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 a really well done psychological thriller Um It has to your point It has this amazing open Um Even if you don't watch anything else in this movie You should You owe it to yourself to watch the first 20 minutes of this movie because um, it's some of the best Uh Psychological based tension, I think, in almost—I mean, it ranks up there with like a lot of other horror movies, especially for just being almost like a cold open. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the 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 film the filmmaking is very workmanlike, yes. um, but still effective. Uh, he does a good job of building tension and setting the scene, um, and the guy that plays. Uh, What's his name? Duncan, right? Something the, Duncan, the killer. Yeah, yeah, Kurt Duncan. Um, Tony Beckley. Tony Beckley is just friggin' fantastic in it. Yeah, uh, excellent character portrayal. Um, great balance of Fragility and sadness With mania And um Menace kind of Mm -hmm. Um Even though he never does anything you always feel like he's on the verge Of uh You know like committing some sort of Assault or like murdering someone Um And it's just it's it's just really well filmed Very very effective Um She's good in it Especially in the beginning Mm -hmm. Um, she does an amazing job with just kind of like a one woman show Mm -hmm. of building tension. And, um, it's filmed in a way that makes you feel like claustrophobic and makes you feel like there's something just out of the corner of your eye, you know, that's coming to get you. So it's, it's, it's just a really well done movie. It is. I, I have not seen this since I was probably like 11 or 12. Um,
0: and I, um. This was kind of like a revelation for me, like watching it again of like how much I actually really enjoy this movie. And I thought a lot of people complain about like it lacking suspense and like how they think the change in genre, like after the cold open, like as you referenced, is like boring. Um, and I don't know, I see it differently. I obviously the opening is classic, but I think that raises that's that builds the tension up in you to raise the stakes and whether you agree with it or not i think it gives the justification for it's trying to give the justification i should say for durning going after this guy um it's supposed to show that this guy is a real threat now it has that added complication of is he cured or is he not but um I think that, like, adds to it in some way is that you got this kind of, like, maybe, like, you know, half-psycho cop, like, you know, after this guy, like, who knows? And it's a cat-and-mouse game, and there's sympathy shown for the killer, potentially. Like, you know, maybe this guy is just fucking crazy and, like, doesn't deserve to be, like, fucking murdered. Um And I think... You right, have... He actually
1: probably just needs to go back to yeah. the institution yes, and be, like, right. cared for right um so it's like
0: you you have this kind of like mixture of emotions about like all of it and but this guy is like potentially a very real threat and I think the cat and mouse game comes off when when that starts comes off really well like I mean I think um I think the stuff with Dewhurst is really good um I, I I like all of that with both the Beckley and um Durning like their interact, both of their interactions with her, I think it's like really like tense and creepy, like with the with the Kurt Duncan character and then the detective. I think there's a lot of, you know, he him using her and her allowing herself to be used. I mean, I think it's a really interesting dynamic, and this is a woman who just kind of things happen to. It feels like, I think that's a really interesting character. Um, and I think the chase scene is really good in it.
1: Honestly,
0: you said workmanlike, and I agree. I think it's a very workmanlike chase, but I think it's really effective. Um, So, yeah, and I think it bookends nicely with the Jill character. So, I mean, I think it's just a tight little, like you said, little movie um, that I think is really underrated in terms of just being a solid thriller with horror elements to it. Like, um, I was really impressed watching it after all these years. Yeah, me too. I really enjoyed watching it again. Oh, the only other thing I noticed was he uses those stationary shots of rooms before the attack happens, much yes. like Carpenter does after the attack in Halloween, I noticed. Um, and I don't know what it is, but I love shots like that. I think it reminds me of Lynch to some degree, yeah. how Lynch shoots like kind of empty rooms and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, I thought that was a really effective device to lead to the tension um, as opposed to coming down from the tension. So all right you ready to move on to number one let's do it all right so number one on your list is zombie 2 directed by Lu- lucio fulci it stars safaro ian McCulloch, and richard johnson it has a 41 percent from critics on Rotten tomatoes and a 69 percent from audiences so you want to tell us a little bit about this and why it's number one on your list
1: one of my favorite horror movies i think um definitely of the 70s maybe of all time uh Zombie is so in Italy, Night of the Living Dead was released as Zombie. And because of the difference in copyright laws and whatever, and the fact that you know, like foreign countries, they can pretty much do whatever they want, this was conceived as a pseudo sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Um, so it's called Zombie 2. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Zombie spelled the traditional way in most VHS releases here from the 80s. Um, I think it's been changed to zombie too and like DVD releases now or whatever. Um, the basic premise is that there's the movie cold opens with this guy shooting. Um, there's like a obvious body wrapped in swaddling with like belts around it as it's sitting up he shoots it in the head and like it explode, like, like The head like has shit come out of it. Then there's a boat in New York Harbor Um that's abandoned that's kind of just floating so the coast guard goes to corral it and there's a zombie on board that murders one of the coast guardsmen and then gets shot and dumped in the water so this british investigative journalist and tisa farrow who's the daughter of the man that owned the boat kind of team up to try and figure out like what happened um they ended up going to this uh, i guess it's a spanish um, it's it's somewhere in like a Spanish speaking area of the world This island called Matul um, Where her father had last been seen And they're going to go there and try and find the father So they end up hiring on with a couple um, Who is on vacation that take them um, There's a really great scene here Where when the woman is um, diving She kind of awakens this zombie that is In a fight with a shark Um, Which is something that uh, Pretty pretty iconic scene that I think Mm -hmm. you need to see To Mm -hmm. truly understand Like what I'm saying Um, They go to the island It turns out that the dead are coming Back to life on the island and there's this doctor That's trying to Sort of figure out a cure for that Like to stop that from happening Um, But he doesn't The dead all rise, they kill almost everybody And then as Everyone's going back to New York You hear on the radio that um, the dead have like started ri- like rising all over the world, and basically everyone's being overrun. Um, a lot of tropes that have become standard in zombie films, and very many of them come directly from this movie. Um, it's beautifully shot. It's interesting because it's most zombie movies take place in like an urban, either an urban setting or a completely rural American setting. And here you have this tropical island setting which is cool to see um, like a different different take on uh, zombies in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene I want to talk about in this movie and I I remembered it but I didn't remember it being as powerful or like as effective as it was and it's it's a really small scene but it's they're talking about the dead rising um, and they show this they show this scene it's like a it's it's over narration and it's of a single zombie walking down the middle of a street there's nobody else around it's just this zombie like shuffle walking down the center of the street um, while they on there's this crab like scuttling across the <laughs> Shot like in front of the zombie, as the zombie just kind of meanders down the mm-hmm. street, and it's it's such it, it's not long in the sense that it's maybe like 20 seconds long, maybe mm-hmm. like 25 seconds, but it's all so perfectly timed and well filmed, and it looks so beautiful mm-hmm. almost like you feel how people could kind of become somewhat complacent around The Walking Dead because it almost doesn't feel like a threat. Um, but then you realize that this is like this, you know, flesh eating like monstrosity that's mm-hmm. coming, uh, coming towards you, and it's like the animals just like continuing their own lives. Like it's um, yeah. There's something about it that's really cool, I think. Um, and there's a lot of really well filmed stuff here. Um, I think this is Fulci's most beautiful movie in terms of him being able to film in the tropical setting. Mm-hmm. That that underwater sequence is one of
0: oddly enough a damn (coughs) zombie fighting a shark is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's amazing. It looks really good. Mm -hmm. And there's... And the score behind it. Like, it's just a beautiful
1: scene. It's hard to explain, but there's like a weird purposefulness in the way that Fulci's zombies move Mm -hmm. that it's just a little bit different than what anybody else does. And it's really kind of cool and unique. Um, And the practical effects in this movie are amazing Especially the makeup Like all the zombies are unique looking And they look It's not just like plaster of Paris Slapped on some actor's face To give him like some weird bulge Like there's very much um, An artistry to everything And I, I would compare it to on par if not maybe a little better than um savini's uh makeup for the living dead um mm-hmm. movies but yeah just yeah i i, I love even how because
0: you know i it's weird that i praise a full cheap movie a lot of times because i'm so kind of like a lot of times like it's too much gross out shit for me sure but um i don't know there's something about this movie i've always loved i haven't watched it in a long time but i enjoy it just as much and things i like that i normally like don't really care for is like it, it doesn't bother me but it doesn't like you know like i'm not into it at all even like this like the the slow eating of the doctor's wife is so well done it's and like
1: so the, the, that's exactly right and that illustrates my point In most zombie movies, the zombies are hunched over with their faces right down in Mm -hmm. the corpse, and they're, like, just shoveling the food in. There's this weird, like, languorous, almost, like, they don't even want to do it. It's just, like, they're compelled. So there's, like, there's a shot where there's this one zombie whose neck is bent at this, like, weird angle. And he takes a single piece of, like, meat from the corpse. And instead of bringing it up to his mouth, he, like, brings it up, like, above his head and then down to his mouth. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's almost, like, it's impossible to explain this almost weird, like, dissonance that happens with you when you watch it. Because it's not, it's just slightly off. Like, everything's off and all the movements are off. And it makes you uncomfortable watching it mm-hmm. a little more without even thinking like, this is why I'm being, I mean, I was thinking about it because I was trying to, like, figure out, like, what makes this movie so great. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it makes it it's... feel, re- the, the fact that it feels off makes it feel real. Yeah. Like, this is like,
0: it it, it. it well, I guess maybe in the sense it makes me actually scared when I'm not scared of the idea of zombies. This makes me uncomfortable enough to be a little, like, on edge. Yeah,
1: because it's like there's these just these things that have kind of infested this these people's house because they're there to find the the doctor's wife, um, who's the one that's dead, and it's like she's just become like part of the furniture, and they're just there like in the house, mm-hmm. and I mean the her her death is fucking amazing too. Um, another one of the more iconic scenes in the movie mm-hmm. where. Um, it's her head being pulled into a jagged piece of a broken door frame or like a slat from like a um, I can't think of what those doors are called. Um, but just like the tension and the anticipation of that wood like piercing her eye and then mm-hmm. they show it. Oh my God. It's so because
0: yeah. um, you think it's like they're not going to show it. They're not going to show right. it. Like yeah. you're not going to see this happen. And then it's like happens and it breaks and it's like it's just jutting from her eyeball and it's like it's and it's so well it's so well filmed and edited, like it's so, it's edited just the right so it's never too long to where it's like you get bored with it, like you know let's say like get on with it, and it's just long enough to like where you like you don't want to see it, but it's like are they going to do it
1: as as a filmmaker and it's it's so so well done. Yeah, and it's it's a really beautiful movie in the sense that again, like I, I said this about um, a movie I said, but th- there's a dreaminess to the way that he films it. Like it's very much, um, hazy and kind of like it makes it feel like the middle of summer. Like it feels hot and it feels mm-hmm. uncomfortable, and he just like slowly, just kind of like takes all hope away of like escape and survival from all of them and then even at the end when Tisa Farrow and what's her name what's his name maybe they've gotten back to civilization then they find out the civilization is just gone Mm -hmm. um I think it's interesting Tisa Farrow in this movie um I guess that we've always known Mia Farrow as kind of like an actress like a a movie star um, but she was still pretty young in her career, I guess, at this point. Well, 10 years, I suppose, maybe, as she's been acting. Um, Tisa Farrow is a terrible actress. And it's really funny always to see her in roles, because I think Mia Farrow is a really good actress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, T- Tisa Farrow is a, is, is a hate-the-face for me. <laughs> <laughs> um she's like the poor man's daria Nickelodeon or whatever yeah i don't think (laughs) right
0: I, i i i'm not particularly impressed honestly with anybody in this movie um like in terms of like being like strong acting at all um and i'm not even particularly impressed with the dialogue a lot of times but um plot wise like you know uh, it works out really well largely because of just the way the sequences are filmed and everything carries out and i i also think that last sequence when they're fighting off the zombies in that little like house hut yeah is really well done and it gives you a claustrophobia and a sense of real pe- like really being in peril and it all actually makes pretty kind of like consistent sense of like how they're trying to fight them off like with what they have i think it's i think that whole thing's really solid too where normally like i'm kind of like rolling my eyes at like the way that they're going about like fighting off zombies um i, I it made pretty pretty consistent sense the entire time yeah. to me
1: it's it's just as good if not better than the same similar scene from Night of the living dead with them barricading themselves on the farmhouse. yes now. yes
0: <laughs> yeah i mean that's more iconic in some ways than than this is but i think it's just as good yeah um
1: but yeah, no, it was really enjoyable to watch this again after like a decade or so. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed watching the begin too. Yeah, it really is like one of the high watermarks for zombie movies um, out of the genre, and definitely, definitely worth watching. Yeah. All right, so we're through three decades, Frank.
0: Um, so I I asked you to do this at the beginning of the year, and because um, I wanted you to, to update your list. So what did you um? What do, what do you come up with for a revision of the top five uh, horror movies of the 70s? So
1: this is my short list, and then I'll give you my top five. And okay. this is something that's like 100% subject change. Mm-hmm. Um, Valerie and her Week of Wonders, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw, The Devils, um, Wicker Man, Legend of Hell House, Black Christmas, Deranged, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Deep Red, Carrie, the Witch Who Came In From The Sea, The Hills Have Eyes, Suspiria, Dawn of the Dead, Halloween, Zombie 2, The Omen, and Frightmare. Like those are my, mm-hmm. my top, whatever, like 16 or 17. Right. Um, I think the five best, and this is not in any particular order, um, both in terms of their artistic value and their importance in terms of their influence. I think are um, Wicker Man, Texas Chainsaw, uh, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Halloween, and Zombie 2, I think are the top five. Hmm. Um, I think they're all can, like worth repeat viewings. I think they're all really entertaining. And I think there's a lot of influence that came out of those movies um, that both informed what came in the 1980s and continues to kind of inspire uh today
0: nice yeah cool oh yeah yeah and i just want and there's a lot of movies out of the out of these 10 years that you introduced me to um that i really liked and i will go back to um at times and um those include well i had watched it like six months before the podcast that we did it on um watched it again but let's care just to death is something that i really liked a lot um, and we'll go back to, um, and this is just new movies, not old movies that I'd seen. Um, uh, oh, where is it at? Oh, shit. Uh, house with the laughing windows. Yeah, Pretty much and- that whole sixty seventy six 76 list. Like little girl who's down the lane. Um, and, uh, uh, which you came in from the Sea um all movies that i like absolutely like loved um in hindsight um and um oddly enough the incredible melting man um it's something that, like as silly as it is i yeah. really enjoyed it's a, a really current, fun Michael- movie yeah it is yes um but just out of the movies that i hadn't seen like those definitely ones that stood out to
1: me and i really enjoyed like a lot um, cool. from these past 10 years so yeah i always like these uh decades lists and Yeah, I think it's even something we could go back sometime in the future and revisit, because there's typically at least five other movies that I would consider putting on the list. Sure. Um, I'm actually looking forward to us going back and revisiting the 80s because I've watched since we've done that list, I've watched several dozen movies from the 80s that Hmm. I had never seen before or maybe had forgotten about that I would maybe go back and consider
0: um yeah definitely um i think it's worth doing at some point um but yeah uh so we're three decades into five decades of frank's top uh horror movies of all time so
1: um all right so
0: any final thoughts frank
1: no i don't really just again really enjoyed um watching the movies on this list and
0: all right well thank you all for listening next week you can join us uh we'll be doing our kind of new tradition in november of having a, a, a guest co-host with us and we'll be covering um our uh friend orion wallmaker's top five b movies of all time um and then uh we will have an episode uh that uh, focuses exclusively on willow um kind of in honor of the television show coming out later in november and then we will start um in november and continue through december Our uh, end of the year list, where we'll be covering the uh, top five movies of uh, 72, 82, 92, and 2002. So that's what you have to look forward to for the rest of the year. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween and have a good week. Juices.